as we come to chapter 19, we pick it up from where God affirmed and confirmed that, that Aaron is the high priest. His rod blossoms supernaturally. And to put to, put to rest the, the accusations against the rebels and their striving against God's order and his leadership. And so he confirmed Aaron supernaturally. And then he showed in the subsequent chapter 18 all the blessings that Aaron would have in service to the Lord, all the blessings that the Levites would have in service to the Lord. And we just talked about like God's a blessing God. And what he has is good. Everything he says is good. And you know that song that Joe was just singing about like, if I have to suffer, then I'll know the hope of the resurrection. That was a beautiful song because our God is a blessing God and he's blessing for eternity and he's preparing us for eternity. And that song tonight when we were singing that remind us of that. A bunch of new songs from Joe. I, I enjoyed all of them. So thank you, Joe. And he'll be back to lead us in worship on Saturday night as well. But as we come to chapter 19, where God had spoken to Aaron directly in the past two previous two chapters, now he's speaking to Moses and Aaron again. And we have this chapter 19 that stands alone with laws of purification. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, this is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded saying, speak to the children of Israel that they bring you a red heifer without blemish in which there is no defect on which the yoke has never come. You shall give it to Eleazar the priest, that he may take it outside the camp, and it shall be slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of the blood seven times directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its hide, its flesh, its blood, and its offal shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast them into the midst of the fire, burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes, he shall bathe in water, and afterward he shall come into the camp, and the priest shall be unclean until evening. And the one who burns it shall wash his clothes in water, bathe in water, and shall be unclean until evening. Then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and store them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel, for the water of purification it is for purifying from sin." And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It shall be a statute forever to the children of Israel and to the stranger who dwells among them. So let's pause here in these first 10 verses of this red heifer. So this is a a cow and this is a cow that's not been bred and it's not carried a yoke. So it's just it's like a calf, if you will. It's red, which is very rare. And it's set apart by the Lord for this purpose where its ashes would be used for purifying from sin. And we know that anything in the Old Testament that's an example of purifying from sin is, of course, going to be a shadow, a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, Jesus is the one who purifies us from sin. And so this interesting chapter 19, which seems somewhat random, popping up here in this historical narrative of the book of Numbers, is reminding us yet again of the necessity of purification from sin, and it's an introduction to us that's different. We studied in Leviticus the law of the leper, and we saw how we're all essentially lepers, and Christ cleanses the leper. It's Leprosy represents defilement, and here again, and in the New Testament, when Jesus cleansed the leper, it was a cleansing, and it, it represented really Jesus' ability to forgive sins. And when we look at what Paul, excuse me, When we look at what John the Apostle said in his first letter, he said, if we confess our sins, that God is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We also know with water baptism, there definitely is a sense of cleansing from our sinful nature. When you go in the water to be water baptized, if you have a full immersion baptism, which is ideal if you can, 
There, I know of at least one baptism I did where you couldn't because it was a health risk. But the idea is, even if it's a sprinkling, it represents cleansing. Cleansing. And when you teach baptism to younger kids when they're getting baptized, we often use that analogy like, hey, like Jesus washes our sins away. So when you go in the water and go into the water, it's like Jesus washing your sins away. Do you understand that? And you can have a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, or a nine-year-old say, yes, I do understand that. So you understand that right now you're identifying with Jesus in his death on the cross for you. And as he came, rose from the grave, you rise up in a new life with Jesus. So it's like those old, your sinful person is being washed away and the new person's coming up. Do you understand that? Yes, I do. And I've seen some very serious and reverent five-year-olds, seven-year-olds and nine-year-olds respond to that explanation of water baptism. There is something about that. Even so, when Pastor Chuck would take teams to Israel, we need to do the tours of Israel before we went to be at the Lord. So often... Many of those people who've been baptized prior, there's just something about seeing the Jordan River that made them want to get baptized. There is a lot of Calvary Chapel people, Costa Mesa, they got double dunked in their journey. Once, wherever it began, Pirates Cove or whatever, but when they went to Israel with Pastor Chuck and they're at the Jordan River, like, hey, he's not John the Baptist, but we'll take it and let's do this. And that would really represent cleansing. And so the red heifer here really is a type of Christ. And that what this unique calf would do, it's so unique. It's not just any cow. It's it's not like the sin offering, the trespass offering, the burnt offering, like the bull or the goat or the ram. This is a very specific animal that's very, very unique. And only this animal with this qualification could be the full sacrifice reduced to ashes with the mixing of water to allow full sacrifice purification for the people of Israel. It's, it's very unique. And of course, Jesus is very unique because there's no one else that can cleanse us. And of course, we know when you look at world religions, there's a great sense of sinful nature within us all in most world religions. So some people are trying to meditate it away, like Tibetan monks or something. If you just go high enough and meditate and remove yourself, you can get away from it. In many of the Hindu various forms of religion, there's rivers that provide cleansing. There's something about us that that we want to be cleansed, that sense of a, like a shower from our sinful nature. And we understand that. And so this is what God was doing here for them in their Mosaic covenant. And, but the key phrase is found there in the back part of verse 9. It, it's, for the, it's, it's for the congregation of the children of Israel, for the water of purification, it is for purifying from sin. So it reminds us and it reminds them that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God that we must be purified from our sins. And in this case, the red heifer, ash, is it. That's all that can do it. Just like Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. Verse 11, we read on. He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with water on the third day and on the seventh day, then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from Israel. He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still on him. So here again we see that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is 
no way that we can remove our uncleanness by human effort. We, we can't get to heaven, and we know this here, but it's worth noting, of course, in the context, is that without being purified, we are defiled. We are unclean. In Adam, all sin, and in Adam, all die, and the wage of sin is death. But in Christ, the second Adam, all are made alive. So even as sin reigned in the first Adam, so too life reigns in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. That's all from Romans chapter 5. We cannot become undefiled by dumb luck, world religion, human philosophy, or just living long enough and wishing away bad thoughts and evil intent. Because the heart's desperately wicked and who can know it? So again here in this, these couple of verses we realize this pattern that the dead body defiles the person. To be cleansed from death equals death, and the wages of sin is death. So it's association of death. We're all under death sentence. The entire universe is under death sentence. But like the Joe Henschel song we were singing, all creation would sing of his glory. Like Jesus said, the rocks will cry out. And even there are psalms where all creation is singing of his glory. But even so... The entire creation, Romans 8, is waiting for redemption, as even we are waiting for full redemption of the king to come. And he's going to come, and it certainly seems like he's going to come soon. So this idea is that the dead, you touch a dead person, you don't cleanse it, it defiles you. And so that person had to be sprinkled on the third day and on the seventh day, and then they'd be declared clean. That, there was a defilement, unquestionable, There was a means by which the defilement could be removed and could be declared clean according to God's standard and the way he laid it out. That unclean person would never get clean by randomness, dumb luck, or again, human philosophy or other religions. That person who touched a dead body, he can't go worship Dagon and the gods of the Philistines down in Gaza and think he's going to get rid of his uncleanness that way. He can't go worship the god of the Edomites or the Ammonites or go back into Egypt and worship the gods of Egypt to get rid of that defilement from the dead body. There is only one way to get rid of that defilement. It is the ash and the sprinkling of the purification water of the red heifer, which represents Christ. And so we see a whole world in travail from the wages of sin and how it affects human relationships. But we know the only way that the defilement goes away is being touched and declared clean in the purification of the Lord. In this case, the red heifer and that sprinkling of water from the red heifer represents the cleansing that Jesus Christ brings us when we surrender our lives to him. And until we come to Christ, we can just quote the latter part of that 13th verse. His uncleanness is still on him. If Christ doesn't cleanse us, we're defiled. All humanity, that simple. Verse 14, we read on. This is the law when a man dies in a tent. All who come into the tent and all who are in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And everyone and every open vessel which has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Whoever in the open field touches one who is slain by a sword who has died or a bone of a man or a grave shall be unclean seven days. And for an unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the heifer burnt for purification from sin, and running water shall be put on them in a vessel. A clean person shall take the hyssop and dip it in the water, sprinkle it on the tent and all the vessels, on the persons who were there, or on the one who touched the bone, the slain, the dead, or a grave. The clean person shall sprinkle the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day, he shall purify himself, wash his clothes, bathe in water, and at evening, 
he, and we can say, or she, shall be clean. So this is an expanding. I like how God goes into detail sometimes because we've already seen in, in Leviticus and Numbers, like, well, what about this? Like, what about, we want to keep the Passover, but we touch the dead body. Remember that? So God gives extra details, and, and I like this. It's helpful to us. So here, here's the situation now. Someone dies in the tent. Someone dies in your tent. Think about this. There's 2.5 million people traveling together for 38 years in the wilderness, and everyone over 20 died, and most of them died in a tent, right? I mean, they lived in tents. It was a massive tent city that just moved for 38 years there in the wilderness, and they died. So every time someone died, what do we do? Like, how do we make this right? Can we still live in our tent? We had the, the jar of manna was open. Well, we had to eat it that day, but you know what I'm saying? Like, different things that were open. Of course, this would even apply going to the promised land. How far is the defilement of being in a room where someone has passed away? Now, some of you older have been immediately close to someone when they've passed away. Maybe in a room. Maybe in a car. Maybe in an office. I've seen different, at different times, different people pass away. Joe was just sharing with me just a few weeks ago, his boss passed away right in front of him, had a, a massive heart attack right next to him. And like, that's a very sobering thing when you watch that happen. And so what, what happens when my mom passed away? I was there when the nurse came in and did the confirmation that all vitals were gone. And there's my sister, there's cousin Jimmy. And it's very surreal when this happens. But in the end, something has to happen. When my mother-in-law passed away, it was in the house. And so people show up at four in the morning and they remove her body. And these things happen. And then when you sell the house, you have to put as a disclaimer, of course, you always have to declare on a house if someone passed away in the house because people buy in the house, that matters to them and they want to know. Now, most people don't care, but some people definitely do care. And it's understandable either way. And we went through that. So what happens when mom or pop or grandpa and grandma pass away in our tent? This is what happens. This is what you do. This is how you're going to resolve this, and we're going to keep going forward. So we can't take care of 2.5 million people in the wilderness, but you can take care of your own household, and this is how you're going to do it. God lays it out. Three days, seven days. Now, what about in war? What about in the battlefield? And you touch a dead body in the battlefield because there was hand-to-hand combat, which is human history. This is how it works. So the tent and the open field combat, same thing. Or a dead bone, uh, excuse me, the bone of a dead person, human being, not an animal, and or a grave, and those things can happen. You're like, oh, I just, like you accidentally touched a human grave. You're like, ah, oh, you're unclean, man. Right, so what do we do? What do we do? You accidentally touch this bone of a human being as clear as a human skeleton. Okay, this is what you do on the third day, this is what you do on the seventh day, and everything's good. All right, we... we there are things in our life that defile us. Now, this is all physical, right? These are physical defilements of human death with humanity. It is different than death with animals. We already covered some of that in Leviticus. But that defilement is consistent in this chapter. There's a consistent defilement from death of human beings because death is defiling. God's not about death. God's about life. And everything about God is life. And going back to Genesis 1 and 2, it was all life. And I don't feel like I ever need to explain how life could have kept going on with the resources without sin entering into the world, but God certainly knows how to keep life going on without sin entering to the universe. Amen? Like, he's God. We're not. I just, like I've said to my wife, I just don't like to see anything. I, I just can't stand seeing anything where animals kill other animals. It makes me sick. And 
it's not like that. Jennifer came home and said they watched like this uh, praying mantis eat a cricket at school. Like it was right there in the garden there at the, Cal- at the Calvary kindergarten. And they had a praying mantis. Like, look, a praying mantis. And it ate a cricket. I was like, I rescue crickets. Like, I know the praying mantis has to eat, but I, I don't want him eating my crickets, you know? And you, you think that's kind of weird, Pastor Joey, but not really. I'm just preparing myself for where I'm going where there's no death. I, I'm just into preview of coming attractions. And I can assure you in the Garden of Eden before sin, nobody ate crickets. They didn't. Everything was herbivore. And so like Jennifer said, well, the, the praying mantis, and you know, she said, well, praying mantis is doing what a praying mantis does. I go, not before the fall. Praying mantis ate my bougainvillea before the fall. He did not eat the crickets. And you say, are you adamant? Yes, I'm adamant. God made the universe in six days. And he said so. And true science confirms that. And there was no death until sin entered when Adam, death entered when Adam sinned. And it was an herbivore joy. When you get children's Bibles and you see these beautiful pictures of Adam and Eve before sin in the garden, they're so beautiful. Like there's the peacock, there's the T-Rex, and he's like chomping on a cedar tree or something. And it's just the way it was. That is the way it was. And that's the way it's meant to be. And by the way, that's the way it's going to be. That's the way it's going to be. Because to ascribe death and the defilement of death to God is blasphemy. Because God is not the author of death. God is life and light and him is no darkness nor death. And that's a problem when people try and say God's the author of this fabrication of evolution or he worked through an evolutionary process. Evolutionary process is dysfunction and death. That is not the character of the father. Because God is light and him is no darkness at all. Praying mantis don't eat crickets in the garden before the fall. And of that, I'm as sure as the blood of Christ on the cross redeeming all of us. Because if what at the first statement is not true, then the second statement doesn't matter. Because it's all true from Genesis to Revelation. And it does matter. Origin does matter. Look at our society right now with 50 genders. You ever watch the clips? Like of Charlie Kirk debating college students who think there's 50 genders? It's madness. I tell you, it's insanity. Jesus said, have you not read how God made them creation, male and female, gender, to two become one in marriage? So creation, gender, purpose. Heterosexual marriage as well. And all that's been completely eroded in 20 years, the last 20 years on planet Earth. It is insane what we're in the middle of. And the only question is, is how long will God allow this to go on? This type of defilement and death, dead bones, slain bodies, graves opened up, dead, te- dead bodies and tents, if you will. How long will God allow this much defilement on this planet before he just says enough is enough and the trumpet sounds and he flushes it and cleanses it and starts it over again? It's coming. This might go on for a while. I don't know. It might go on, on for hundreds of years for all we know. But really, my major in studies is history. And there's never been any history like the last 20 years on this planet. And for all the crazy things that happened from the French Revolution, all these other things that you can study in human history, the Byzantine Empire, all of it, the Ottomans, the Turks, all that. You study the Genghis Khan, all, all the things you ever see. There's nothing like the last 20 years where God has been so purposely, willfully removed from society by a globalist, demonic agenda concerning origin, 
gender, and definition of marriage. Let God be true and every man a liar. So defilement is real and purification is absolutely necessary. And all this defilement in this chapter, it just represents all the defilement outside these doors of people warring against God. And there must be a purification. There must be a purification. What's so hard to watch in something like Charlie Kirk talking with college-age students who are just out of their minds, they're zombies, is they have to be cleansed with the water and the ash of the red heifer, Jesus Christ. And it seems so improbable in this current society, but you never know what God might do to bring this generation to their knees for the day of the Lord. Do you sometimes wonder, like, is everyone given over or is a great revival coming? I mean, I think both those thoughts, obviously we'd love to see a great revival. That everyone's being given over is not hard to debate or prove. There is life and there is death. There is defilement and there is purification. And this is all a shadow of things to come. The fullness is Jesus Christ for this generation and every generation. We read on in verse 20. But the man who's unclean and does not purify himself, that person shall be cut off from among the assembly because he's defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of purification has not been sprinkled on him. He's unclean. It shall be a perpetual statue for them. He who sprinkles the water of purification shall wash his clothes, and he who touches the water of purification shall be unclean until evening. Whatever unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. Man, this is an unclean chapter. We are desperately sinful, and we need a desperate Savior who's died on the cross for us with a desperate love and desperate blood of God to redeem us. This is a desperate situation right here of defilement. And it just reminds us that unless the Lord Jesus Christ forgives us and cleanses us, there is no forgiveness, there's no cleansing. But in Jesus Christ, we have absolute, total forgiveness and cleansing. So in our worst days, in our best days, for unsaved relatives, we have to love, hopes all things, bears all things, and believes all things. And we have to receive that cleansing in our personal life through faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And we need to pray for those who don't know him that they could know just what it's like. Because when Peter preached in the day, in Acts chapter 3, early on in the church history, he preached that the need for repentance, that times of refreshing can come. And the refreshing came from the remission of sins and the cleansing of those sins. And he was offering it to his compatriots, primarily the Jews at that time in chapter 3 there in Jerusalem. He was pleading with them to look no more to the bulls and the the sheep and the goats, but to look to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for their cleansing, for times of refreshing to come. And we have that. We can't, we've received that. Those who receive Christ, we have it daily. If we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. But for those who don't know the Lord, we just have to keep reminding ourselves about empathy, prayer, and love, and, and God's mercy. But they must be saved. It's not about reforming a society. It's about regeneration of the lost. Verse Chapter 20, verse 1. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Well, just like that, our, we're back on the historical narrative, and Miriam's died. The big sister of Moses, the prophetess, tambourine, Miriam, Leprosy for seven days outside the camp. As we come to chapter 20 of Numbers, 
our timeline has changed now dramatically. We've gone from the beginning of the journey toward the end of the journey. The last two chapters, the rebellion of Korah and these things, they unfold in sort of the middle of the journey, if you will. But now, with the death of Miriam and the rest of the events in this chapter, we find ourselves on the back end of the 40 years. So we need to kind of, all right, it's like we, it's like we stepped in a portal out of time from when it all began, the beginning of the journey, and now we've come back into, whoa, now everyone's 35 years older, and those 20-year-olds are 55, right? The ones that were just under 20, they're like 55 now, or 52, 53, 51, and all the children born underneath that timeline, those that were already alive when it began, and those that were born since then, so they could be, you know, a 35-year-old could have been born once the journey really began, and now they're 35, right? So the, the, it's been a transition, it's a changeover. Generations in motion, so one generation has been dying while the other generation and the, even the generation behind them, the children and the children's children have been growing up in the wilderness, and so that's where we're at. And so now we see Miriam in the end of her life stepping into eternity. We don't get a lot of fanfare. We don't hear much about it. We just have a simple verse there. It says, Miriam died. But on that note, we can pause for a moment and think, what did Moses feel and Aaron, their emotion with an adult sibling? They all served the Lord together. They served the Lord together for 35 years in this capacity. Miriam spied on Moses when he was in the, the, the bush there, you know. And so like when, when in, the, in the basket when Moses was younger, and got the nurse, got Moses' mom to be able to nurse him for Pharaoh's daughter. So Miriam, this, this long history together, Moses and his sister. And now she's gone. That would have been a very impactful death for Moses in the wilderness. In fact, his anger that comes after this might actually even be connected to that. There's a lot of raw emotion when people you love die. And there is shock. And there's waves of shock and grief and how you deal with different things and how they impact you and affect you. Moses' sister just died. Her journey is done. And they're very close to the promised land. God said it'd be 40 years in the wilderness for the infidelity, so they know they're getting closer. Like, God, some things you know because God said X amount of time it'll be so. Like Joseph's dream, seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, right? Some things, the day of the Lord, you don't know, the trump sounds and that's it. Some things you do know, and they know that they're on the back end of this wilderness wandering. We pick it up in verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron, and the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought us up in the assembly of the Lord in this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went on from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water from them. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, 
Because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I've given them. This was the water at Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. This is a pretty famous story from the life of Moses. The first time Moses brought water from the rock we saw was very shortly after they came out of Egypt, and he struck the rock with his staff, and the water supernaturally came out. This is the second time, decades later, the Lord has instructed him to speak to the rock, but he strikes the rock twice. We know in the first Corinthians that we're told that that rock is Christ. The rock represents Christ. So in striking the rock the first time, clearly there was a representation of Christ being crucified on the cross for us to bring forth the living water, towards the living water, which Jesus himself said is the Holy Spirit. So there's a typology with the first striking of the rock. From death and inanimate matter comes the living water from the rock which struck we're told by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, the rock is Christ. So that whole symbolism there in Exodus is like, Christ is struck, the rock come, pours forth the water, Christ is that rock, and the living water comes forth, and Jesus and John said, come to me, and I'll, from the one who comes to me, torrents of living water will come for them. This he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit. But now, the Father tells Moses, speak to the rock. See, Christ is only crucified once, not twice. Only once. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament makes it very clear. Christ was offered up once for our sins, once for all. And in being offered up once for all, he doesn't die again over and over and over. The animal sacrificial system is obsolete, as we're told in Hebrews. Christ died once for all. It's a thoroughly complete form of sacrifice to save humanity from our sins and to bring us into a right relationship with God and all the promises of God and access to the Father, access to the Son, we come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need, to the Jesus who's ever at the right hand of the Father and pleads on our behalf, and the hope of heaven confirmed by the Spirit in our hearts. His Spirit bears witness with our spirit. So once we're saved, we're saved by the rock having been struck for us and the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and we're now born again and we're born in the Spirit. But we don't crucify Christ again. So the speaking of the rock is, is a different thing. It's more relational than establishing it. And there's a typology here that Moses was to fulfill. Part of his life destiny was to speak to this rock and represent relationship with Christ the rock as opposed to striking of the rock to be birthed by the rock. And he he didn't do it. And not only did he not do it, he misrepresented the gospel. Because if Christ is crucified more than once, that's a misrepresentation of the gospel. There's a total sufficiency of Christ on the cross. And what's the last thing he said on the cross? It is finished, right? Well, if you strike the rock twice, it's not finished because you got to do it again. And for that misrepresentation, the father tells Moses, you're not, you're not going to go into the promised land. And it says that the Lord was hallowed amongst the people, and the Lord still brought forth the rock, which is something very interesting to me. Because so often me, we misrepresent the Lord in our failures and shortcomings, but he still brings forth the living water from our life that blesses other people in spite of us. Isn't that comforting? Like, what if these people are all totally dependent upon Moses' perfect obedience to have that water brought to them? But God still, even though Moses misrepresented the Lord, God still brought water from the Lord to the people. It's like Pastor Chuck used to say at Calvary, that whatever the motives of different people on TV, you know, high-profile televangelists and things like this, and send your money and you'll be healed and all that, 
Pastor Chuck used to affirm, and I would affirm the same, people truly do get healed by those ministries and by those people. And it's not because necessarily those people have sound doctrine all the time or good motives, but God still honors people's faith in him. So if there's people that go to something like that, and even if the person up front is a fraud, if they're preaching truth, because what did Paul say to the Philippians? I only rejoice at this, what? That the gospel's preached. Even if it's from a wrong motive, he said that. And so even if people are with the wrong motives, still speaking the truth, and God knows their heart, and it's all like a facade or an act for the people doing that, but if someone goes sincerely and they're, they're moving right past that person and their faith is in Jesus, God can honor that. God will honor that. And that's why we need to be really careful when we critique other people's ministries of that nature. I think there's something really I've learned in my own walk. That like, you know what? It's not for me to say. It's just not for me to say. If someone's preaching the gospel and they're knocking people over like bowling pins or whatever and and it's not my cup of tea. I'm not sure it's the Lord. But if people truly get healed, it's because they had faith in the Lord. It's like water coming from the rock, even though Moses misrepresented the Lord, striking it twice. God is still faithful to who he is and his nature and his character. And he loves humanity. And he's still going to... Moses is calling them rebels, and they were rebels, right? God, they're already called rebels. And Moses like, you rebels? Like, I mean, picture Moses going like, you rebels? Maybe he's just like... Like that, you know, like maybe like I got a big wind up, you know, like it's like a boom, you know, like, I mean, we all know what it's like to be frustrated with humanity. You rebels. And still like they are rebels. And what does the Lord do? He still brings forth water. God is gracious and merciful. And we see that in this story here. We need to be reminded that God is gracious and merciful with us in our shortcomings. And we need to be reminded that God is gracious and merciful with others. And we want to major in grace and mercy because that's the heart of the father. And it also just shows that one bad day can undo a lot of good things. We talk about that fairly often. Just one bad day can undo a lot of good stuff. And, and I try not to hold it against others when they have a bad day that undo, undoes a lot of good things. You know what I'm saying? Like, life is like that. Some people have a Hall of Fame career, but they're remembered for one really bad play that cost a Super Bowl or something like that. I try not to... Our life is a tapestry, and there's going to be mountaintops and valleys. There's going to be great victories, and honestly, if you live to be 80, I'm sure you'll have great defeats and failures in your life. And the older you get, the more you realize that when you look in the mirror, and the more apt you are to be a little more gracious and merciful with other people, because we're all sinners trying to find our way and fulfill God's plans, and we all have to humble ourselves. We all have to be chastened. We all have to be corrected. We all have to grow. We all have to mature. And a part of growing in the Lord is realizing how desperately we need a Savior. And it does help us have empathy with grace and mercy toward others who need the Savior too. But we all know what it's like to want to hit the rock twice, right? We do. I mean, there are things, there are people that push our buttons. We just pull out that rod and we're just going, where's the rock? I'm going to crack it right now. And the Lord's like, hey, speak to the rock. I'll speak to the rock, all right? I got you speaking to the rock. I mean, we can all, re- I mean, can't we all relate to Moses in this story? Yeah. I mean, and of course, know this, he didn't go in the promised land with his first body, but he did go in the promised land with his glorified body. Because when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, John, and James, who's there? Elijah and Moses. And they knew it was Moses. 
So he's in the promised land in a glorified body coming from a different dimension with Jesus, the Father speaking from the cloud. So, I mean, Moses, he missed the black and white version of it all, but he got the full surround sound multicolored dimension. The Lord knows. You know, if there's certain actions that we make cost us something, that's unfortunate, but his grace is sufficient. Verse 14, we pick it up. Now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom, that's on the journey to get to the promised land. Thus your brothers, thus says your brothers Israel. Remember, Edom is the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. So historically, they're of the same bloodline from the house of Isaac. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. And then the Edomites come from Esau, and the Israelites come from Jacob. They were brothers, twins. You know all the hardships that's befallen us. Verse 15, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we dwelt in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. When we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent the angel and brought us up out of Egypt. Now here we are in Kadesh, a city in the edge of your border. Please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through the fields or vineyards, nor will we drink water from wells. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. Then Edom said to him, you shall not pass through my land lest I come out against you with the sword. So the children of Israel said to him, We will go by the highway, and if I or my livestock drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. Let let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. Then he said, You shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. This is far-reaching because the Edomites became the perpetual enemies of Israel, And later on, under the prophets of the Old Testament, they were reproved and condemned by God because of what they did to Israel here. They did not help them in their journey. They did not stand by them. And they looked at Israel with unbelief instead of faith. Instead of looking at them with empathy and compassion as their biological descendants of their brothers and the the lineage and the history they had together and having faith. And I mean, you would think that even say, you know, these guys came through the Red Sea. These guys destroyed Egypt without doing anything. God is with them. It's probably in our best interest to bless them and let them come through. Because we know from our forefather Esau that God didn't promise them Edom where we live. He promised them Israel where the Canaanites live. So we should assist them in their journey. That would just be practical common sense. It would also be a spiritual worldview too. But they didn't do that. They chose fear and unbelief. They choose to think the worst case in this situation and we think, well, you know, you don't know if a country wants to destroy your country. Right. We don't. But since God looks at the heart, and he looks at the heart for individuals, and he can look at the heart for a people group, we know from this event he, hold, he held the entire country accountable for not assisting Israel in their journey. So I'm not holding them accountable. God held them accountable. See, I love how God gives us his whole word to interpret his word. God held Edom accountable for not helping Israel in this journey, and he cursed him for it. So therefore, he expected them to do the right thing, and in not doing the right thing, they rebelled against God, and they knew it as a nation. They knew it, and God held them accountable for it. Not only that, a thousand years later, when they're being dragged off into captivity with the Babylonians, Edom is rejoicing over what God, God chastening Israel, and they're rejoicing over, and God's like, hey, Edom, Don't even think you're going to get off the hook. You're condemned by me because you rejoice at the downfall of my people when I was dealing with them. Kind of goes back to you. Don't rejoice when your enemy has problems. Just let it be. 
just leave it alone and let God be God and we be merciful. This event profoundly affected these people and their descendants for a millennium. Which leaves us with that thought when different countries do different things, different allegiances that, that countries make with different other nations, different constitutions they make, new constitutions, different laws that a nation makes, those things affect the nation. When a nation collectively, whether it's under monarchs or like our country, a democracy technically, checks and balances, we're only a couple hundred years into this experiment, you know, the three branches of government. With the French Revolution, the decisions they made, how far-reaching they were for the French people. French won a lot of wars before the French Revolution. They lost some, too. But, uh, they, they, listen, 20th century, the French lost everything. World War I, Indochina, and World War II. World War, World War I, World War II, and then Indochina. The Vietnamese defeated the French before they defeated America. And what did, the, what did the French do in the French Revolution? Well, Bonaparte, of course, came to power. But they, they removed, they, they attacked faith in God. They, they brought on an agnostic, atheistic worldview under the influence of Voltaire and those guys that preceded it. And they cast off the monarchy. They cast off the freedom of religion and the freedom of speech that existed under their monarchy and their, their nation. And it was so bad that all the rest of Europe sealed their borders and had to ban the books of the French Revolution, including Catherine the Great. She's like, Catherine the Great in Russia completely banned all books coming from France with the French Revolution because they, were, they taught a, a worldview devoid of God. And Catherine the Great firmly believed that God was sovereign over the universe and he was sovereign over Russia. And that's why she built all her orphanages and all the things that she did for the Russian Orthodox Church at the same time. At one time, she was great friends with Voltaire and embraced all those Enlightenment ideas of Europe between 1750 and 1790. But after the French Revolution, 1791-92, Catherine the Great was like, no, we just, this is ungodly, this is evil. France has never recovered from the French Revolution. That's what I'm saying. And people often have said, what if America's revolution was like the French Revolution? Instead of a revolution against God, we became a revolution for freedoms of God. And now look where we're at. God holds nations accountable as he does individuals. We finish off tonight with verse 22. Now the children of Israel, the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son, bring them up to the Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son. For Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. So Moses did, just as the Lord commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son. And Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. Now when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron 30 days. It's all transition. It all changes, right? Pastor Chuck's not the pastor at Calvary Costa Mesa. Brian Broderson is, right? Steve Mays is in Pastor Calvary Chapel South Bay. Jeff Gill does. It's all changing. It's always changing. It never stays the same. It just, it never stays the same. And we have to understand that, that nothing ever stays the same. People we love live and people we love die. And getting old is tough. 
And, you know, I mentioned we're bringing my dad home this week. He's been in assisted living for four years in really good assisted living, but we've had enough of the COVID. We, we can't do this anymore. We can't wave flags on Veterans Day to a guy that took a bullet for the team in the Vietnam War. You know, he's got to come home. He's going to be home for Christmas. We're very excited. Even speaking to the people at Sunrise Day, they said it's the best thing ever you could bring your dad home. It's the best thing you could do. His caregiver said, I'm going to miss him, but you're doing the right thing. He needs to be with family. And this is crazy, right? Because this could go on, you know, because you can't go in and visit him. And I think of my dad at, at 90 because he outlived his wife. My mom passed away last year. He's outlived so many people. You live to be 90, you outlive so many people. And you think of Moses right here. He just buried Miriam, and now he's burying his brother Aaron. Now, we don't know the background of Miriam's death, but Aaron, God's like, you know what? It's done. Aaron's going to step into eternity now. So it's when you have someone's terminal, like a loved one, someone's terminal, and you know they're, they're going to pass. Like when you do a terminal death, you know that. And you begin to prepare yourself. It's easier. Like, hey, they're, they're going. God says they're going, and you prepare for that, and they're going to go. And you prepare yourself mentally and emotionally for that. But I think of Moses, like how lonely the world became for Moses after this. Because his parents would have been long gone. And now he's lost his adult siblings. I've got an older brother and a younger sister. And I'm really glad they're alive. And I'm really glad they're going to be with us for Christmas. Because mom's not. Dad will be. There are many in this room who know what Christmas is like, devoid of a loved one that was there the year before. I can look around this room right now, and I know your stories, and I know what that Christmas was like. We hung the stocking for my dad today, and Wilkie. There's 13 stockings now, you know? There's more grandkids on the way, too. But mom's, you know, she's not going to be there. And that's part of getting old. My dad has outlived all of his friends. Bob Tremel was his best friend. Bob Tremel served at Iwo Jima, combat veteran Iwo Jima. He was 95. Bob Tremel passed away five months ago, started COVID. Called my dad and said, Bob Tremel. He did everything with Bob Tremel. My dad, he's outlived everybody of his generation. I moved all those photo albums from his family's history to our guest room because my office is becoming his room. It's all cleared out. It's ready for dad to come in. Timmy and Christian Warren are going to move all the stuff Saturday morning. Dad's going to have breakfast at sunrise. going to come home. I think of Moses. Do you imagine what it felt like for Moses to come down the mountain without his brother? How many times did God speak to Moses and Aaron together? It's just Moses with his nephew. That's the way life works, man. We know that. There's a day when Aaron's a high priest and there's a day when Aaron's in eternity. But I will say this in closing on the high priest. Our high priest never dies and is not replaced by our nephew. Our high priest is Jesus Christ. According to the priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. And because of this, he ever lives and intercedes for us and will always be there for us in our journey. So I don't know if we'll be saying goodbye to people that we're leaving behind and they got to come down the mountain without us or they'll be saying goodbye to us and we come down the mountain without them. We don't know. But from my perspective of life, I think of Moses coming down the mountain without his brother in the same chapter that started without his sister.
And I just praise God that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. And we have a hope that's an anchor to the soul in heaven. Amen.